Last time on Motivational Interviewing, the podcast. Motivational Interviewing is a collaborative conversation. Its goal is to strengthen a person's own motivation for changing a behavior. The skills are easy to remember with the acronym OARS, ORS, like the paddles, not the precious metals. O stands for open-ended questions, A for affirmations, R for reflections, S for summary. And you have the mental framework. Rise is our mnemonic there. Roll with resistance, identify discrepancy, support self-efficacy, and engage with empathy. But that doesn't mean anything unless you're thinking about motivational interviewing before you even step into the patient's room. Today we're focusing on how motivational interviewing, or MI for short, can help you through a discussion with someone struggling with substance abuse. Or someone who has a loved one who's struggling. Because one thing we see in the literature is that while MI may not be a panacea for all issues associated with substance abuse, it refocuses the provider's attention on the relationships that have a significant effect on the patient's well-being. And how those relationships can provide an impetus for change. I think it's also important to emphasize the point that motivational interviewing, especially in the context of substance abuse, needs to be used in conjunction with other supportive therapy. In the first podcast, we described MI as an effective bridge to other interventions. And in treating addiction, the literature underscores just how important transitions of care can be. In this podcast, we'll go through a sample patient encounter, pausing at key moments to review some of the MI basics being used. We'll review the evidence concerning substance abuse and motivational interviewing, and we'll wrap up with a short exercise to test your knowledge. So let's set up this skit. You're seeing a patient who was admitted overnight for a cellulitis of their left foot. It was marked on their H&P that they have a history of heroin use and that they're currently on 40 milligrams methadone daily. It's a natural reaction to start thinking of all these questions you want to ask, but try to remember to let the patient guide the conversation. With some gentle nudging. Of course. Let's listen in. Miss J? Hey, I'm sorry to wake you up. How are you feeling? It hurts. Your foot? Yeah, it's really bad. I think I'm due for my oxycodone. Can you check to see? This foot is really bothering you, huh? Oh my god, I'm just not good with pain, you know? And it's like every time I come in, the docs just cut off the methadone, which is the only thing that touches me. Hmm. And I know I'm like an addict, right? So I already know what you're going to say. Let's pause. This is a really tough statement to respond to. The student did a good job of refocusing the conversation earlier with some empathy and affirmation of the patient's pain. But the patient is sort of digging her heels in now on the issue of pain management. In the first podcast, we talked about the need to roll with resistance, especially early on in the conversation when you're building trust. Think about it for a second. What would you say at this point? And how might the patient respond? Let's dive back in. You're seeing that everyone who comes in here thinks they have you figured out, but they're not fixing your pain, and they're not taking the time to understand your addiction. No, I get that you're all busy and stuff. Well, I can at least try to understand, right? Tell me what brought you into the hospital. I hurt my foot real bad last week while I was out walking. It's like I got this blister, and it was rubbing against my shoe. Really painful. And the methadone clinic had some problems with me. I'm not going back there, I swear. But anyway, yeah, I shot up into my foot. Heroin? Yeah, and that made it better for a while, but then it got worse. You know, all red and swollen and throbbing like mad. That's when I came in. What made you think, yeah, this is bad, I need to get some help? 
All right, time out. How do they handle that trap statement about doctors thinking they know everything? They combined a bit of reflection, but also some selective summarization, which helped steer things back towards the most immediate issue of this patient's pain. And the student's use of the word understanding allowed him to bridge to that more open-ended question about the patient's history of presenting illness. I thought the last question, probing deeper into what one issue spurred the patient to seek assistance, was really nice. It might reveal something about the patient's general attitude towards outside help versus independence. I couldn't walk on it. My partner had to help me out of bed, which is just embarrassing. I felt like I was some old lady or something. You just couldn't walk anymore. Has something like this happened before? I got a bad infection in my arm, went through the whole antibiotics and painkillers thing. I think this is worse, though. What do you feel about that? That this time it's really bad? I just don't want to think about what would have happened if Christine wasn't there. She's the best. I'm just worried about what she thinks. She's in the program, too. You're frightened, but more than that, you're scared that your partner is stressed out by this, too. Definitely. Why do you think your foot got this bad? Oh, my shoes are awful. The blisters just got worse and worse. This is another critical juncture. Does the patient really believe that it was just a blister that caused this infection? Or do they see their heroin use as contributing to these hospitalizations? It would be really easy for the med student to drift into education mode. You know, this is what happened. This is why you got the infection. The infections will keep on happening if you continue to inject. Scare tactics. But this might force the patient into playing the devil's advocate, even as, hinted at in their comments about their partner and their struggles with pain, they may have a stronger intrinsic motivation to actually change. So how would you assess their understanding of the connection between their heroin use and their cellulitis? Think about it. You mentioned that your partner was in the program with you. Has she or anyone else you've known had a really bad infection like this? Hmm. I'm not sure, but do you think the heroin made it worse? Do you? You're messing with me now. (laughs) Sorry, that's not my intention, but when I hear patients ask questions like that, it usually means that somewhere in the back of the mind, maybe they've figured out the answer themselves. Okay, so I know I injected into the foot, and I guess the pain wasn't all that bad until a day or two after the injection. I'm still a little fuzzy on why it would puff up and turn red and all that, though. Maybe injecting made it worse. Yeah, but how? I don't know about you, but when I think of feet, I don't think they would be an ideal body part to eat a sandwich off of, right? They're dirty. (laughs) Yeah. So anytime there's a break in the skin, whether from a cut or a dog bite or... A needle. You open up a path for any bacteria on your feet to infect the layers of the skin. Right, okay. But listen, you were at the point where you couldn't walk and you needed help to get out of bed and you're still in a lot of pain. I think that's what we should focus on, right? What can we do to make sure that doesn't happen again? A little summary, a nice transition to maybe a discussion of what might alter, for the better, the future course of their addiction. The student is trying to elicit change talk, so he needs to be attuned to what sort of response he gets. His strategy might shift depending on whether the patient expresses a desire or reason to change versus a commitment to change. I wish I could stay clean, I really do. Have you had stretches when you weren't using? Yeah. What did that look like? Meetings, every day. Christina was my sponsor, that's how we met. I was working too and my boss was a hard ass, so I knew I couldn't come to work wrecked. It didn't last long though. Real quick, there's a couple of important things going on. One, 
That was a desire to change statement the patient made, which needs to be supported by some concrete, self-expressed reasons or needs to change. The med student's question about past periods of abstinence can sometimes strengthen that desire to change, but also might elucidate obstacles or barriers to change. You had good social support and a decent job that you didn't want to lose, but keeping clean was still hard to sustain. Well, even with money coming in, I couldn't afford my apartment, so I was kicked out. I went to stay with some friends, and the first time they offered me a hit, it was like, yeah, I deserve a little break. Using gave you a holiday from the struggles you were facing. That's what I thought. I know that's stupid. You were overwhelmed. When you're using, what does your day look like? God, I'm a mess. I wake up, and if we have something, it's going into my veins. Usually we're out, though, so we have to get some money together. I don't trick. I refuse to do that. So I help someone sell oxys or perks or whatever. The whole time, of course, I'm dope sick. My stomach is turning. I'm sweating. Once I get a fix, though, there's hours during the day that just disappear, you know? Everything you do is focused on that next high. And it's weird. Like, everyone I use with, they're my friends, but we don't even talk. We're alone even though there's five or six of us in the room. You feel isolated. To be honest, I feel betrayed. I mean, why are these people I love letting me use? What I'm hearing is that the attraction of using heroin for you is the escape from your struggles with work and paying your rent. And when you reach out for help from people you care about, you find yourself in a situation where you fall back into a pattern or habit that your friends can't or won't shake you from. I can see how all the uncertainty in your life has really been frustrating for you. What can we do to get you back in the driver's seat to have some control over this thing? There's a lot to unpack here. It sounds like financial hardship and housing instability push the patient to use after a long period of abstinence. Sometimes providers are reluctant to highlight the attractions of their patient's substance use, but here, reflecting on how heroin gave the patient a little holiday was really important. This is a really critical part of motivational interviewing. If you, as a provider, are only mentioning bad things about substance use, the patient will naturally fall into the role of defender, arguing for continued use. It's better to allow her own ambivalence about using, with pros and cons, to be aired and examined. The med student then used a summary statement to highlight that ambivalence and present change as a positive way to resolve the conflict. Let's see how they wrap up the conversation. I'm going to talk to Christine. I can't do this alone. What do you want to tell her? That I need to get clean. I can't keep doing this. Getting hospitalized? Yeah, going through this, this pain, and not knowing if I can trust myself or anyone else. No one should have to go through this. Yes, I need to get clean. That's great, and you've done it before, right? What will staying clean look like? I'm going to have to get linked into another methadone clinic. The other place is awful. What else? Your living situation has been a problem in the past, right? That's a little easier. Christina has her own place, and if we're serious about this, I should be staying there. It sounds like you have a good idea of what you need to do, and I will try to help you out by doing what I can do. Knocking out this infection, get you feeling better. Thanks. We heard a lot of change talk in that last segment. Sometimes it comes all at once, avalanche style. And even though you love to hear it as a provider, it can be tough to guide it towards a positive end, like the student did here. What did he do right? One, he reiterated through his questioning the untenable nature of the status quo. Hospitalizations will keep on happening. Pain management will become more difficult. Two, he made the patient think about future obstacles to meeting her commitment the housing issue, and the conflict with the methadone clinic. And while it would have been nice to offer some sort of transitional care to the patient, 
I think the student recognized that they didn't want to bite off more than they could chew in this first talk. Exactly. This is a brief intervention. Its goal is sort of to make your job irrelevant. If the patient is coming up with a positive first step forward by themselves, that motivation, that intrinsic drive is going to carry them onward with only minimal support from you. A randomized controlled trial that looked at individuals with substance abuse issues receiving either initial motivational interviewing or usual advice-driven care found that motivational interviewing didn't necessarily increase the percentage of patients with continuing on with or linking to long-term therapy, but those who had received motivational interviewing and linked themselves to outpatient offices, attended more sessions, and boasted more days of abstinence during therapy. In a second RCT of individuals with reported substance abuse on top of a known mental health diagnosis, the so-called dual diagnosis, also showed higher rates of attendance at long-term addiction programs for the motivational interviewing group. Now, a common knock on motivational interviewing is that providers think it just means doing what I normally do. After all, you've probably heard, or maybe even used, the OR skills we introduced in the first podcast, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summarization. But researchers tested this assumption. Carol et al. trained providers in motivational interviewing and compared these individuals to untrained docs. They found that there was a discriminable and significant difference between the just-doing-what-I-already-doers and the MI group in both patient outcomes and feedback given by patients. And while gaining these skills can be difficult, a study published this year proved that most providers are quick studies, reaching proficiency in motivational interviewing in as little as one month just by studying a manual. We've posted links to these and other studies looking at motivational interviewing and substance abuse under the podcast description. Check them out if you're interested. For now, let's wrap things up with an exercise to test your knowledge of the principles and skills behind motivational interviewing. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure. You'll hear a brief scenario and a statement from a patient. You'll then get a choice of possible responses. Pick what you feel is the best statement that will move the conversation forward with a focus on behavior change. Mr. M is a middle-aged male with past history of alcohol abuse, now with cirrhosis of the liver, and presenting to your outpatient office asking about the possibility of a liver transplant. He is still actively drinking. Doc, the way I see it, the liver's only going to get worse no matter what I do, and the transplant is really the only option for me. What's your response? A... No transplant surgeon is going to give an active drinker a new liver. B, what do you think will happen after you get a transplant? C, you're struggling with the direction that this disease is heading. At this point, Mr. M has laid out pretty starkly what he wants. Response A takes a confrontational approach, and the patient may already know about the need for demonstrated abstinence before a transplant. Response B seems a bit premature. It's important to have the patient think of the future, but we haven't yet established what the status quo is and whether he's struggling with the ambivalence of possibly having to give up alcohol. So response C seems like the most prudent option. Sure, it's just a reflection, but it tells the patient that you want to know more about how he's dealing with the disease. Mr. M explains that when he was diagnosed with cirrhosis, he wasn't sure what that meant. But as he's been hospitalized repeatedly for ascites management, it frightens him that the end isn't going to be pretty. 
He tells you, Bottom line, I don't want my family to watch me just deteriorate in front of their eyes. What's your response? A. Your health is important to your family. B. What have the doctors during those past hospitalizations talked to you about in terms of why you're having these issues? C. You know that you're deteriorating because of your drinking, right? This scenario helps us talk a little bit about directive versus guiding approaches to patient education. We've established with Mr. M that the status quo is not sustainable, but we're unsure about how he's connecting in his mind his continued drinking and the progression of his cirrhosis. A directive approach is represented by choice C. Here's the information, take it or leave it. It's paternalistic and it invites argument from the patient. A guiding approach is represented by choice B, and it's probably the best option here. It prevents you from being cast as just another doctor telling me how and why I have to quit, and invites the patient to discuss his or her own ambivalence towards change. Choice A is a reflection, but not a very effective one. Reflection should represent the patient's feelings, not those of their family. They're an opportunity to guide the patient towards expressing an intrinsic motivation for change. Mr. M describes how his doctors have explained that drinking will only worsen the ascites and may cause other problems. After explaining that he's tried to cut down on the amount he's drinking, he asks, What would be a safe amount for me to drink? What's your response? A. Do you have a goal? B. The only safe amount is none at all. C. What do you think would happen if you continue to drink, even in small amounts? It's a trap! Yeah, this is a tough question to respond to. Mr. M wants to make this into a negotiation, something we definitely don't want to engage in. Every clinician would probably want to scream out choice B because it's true, one, and because that's the conclusion we want the patient to come to anyway. But it's clear that his providers have already stressed this, and he's resisted for some reason that we still need to investigate. So it's crucial that we pivot back to why he came in here in the first place. He's scared about his prognosis. And he now has expressed that he knows his drinking is contributing to his poor health. Choice C asks Mr. M to imagine a continuation of his current path, and it presents behavior change as a potential alternative, one that we hope he will himself argue for. I hope this exercise helped you reflect on just how much thought and effort has to go into a motivational interviewing encounter. We mentioned in the intro podcast that MI is especially effective in those with heavily entrenched beliefs and behaviors, and I think that's in part due to the way it forces the provider to listen and respond differently, to present the patient with a genuinely new Viewpoint. People struggling with addiction can also present with a deficit in trust. Surveys for motivational interviewing studies reflect the ability of motivational interviewing to make a connection with these patients. Providers score higher on questions like, did you feel like the doctor understood your problems? Or, did you feel like you're being listened to? And more than that, these patients want to talk. So start a conversation. 